This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Hired.com is offering a new freelancing and contracting offering. They have multiple companies that will provide you with contract opportunities. They cover all the tracking, reporting, and billing for you. They handle all the collections and pre-fund your paycheck. They offer legal, accounting, and tax support. And they'll give you $1,000 when you've been on a contract for 90 days. But with this link, they'll double it to $2,000 instead. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Freelancer Show. This week's episode of The Freelancer Show is brought to you by Earth Class Mail. Earth Class Mail moves your stale mail into the cloud, giving you instant access 24-7 and integrates with the tools and services you use every day. It's crazy that we've moved everything we do for the business over to the digital world, but still need to pick up, sort, and manage physical mail. With Earth Class Mail, you can get all of your mail scanned and accessible online 24-7. You can search your mail, send invoices over to your accounting software, sync important documents into cloud storage, deposit checks, and really just make running your business a whole lot easier. You also get real professional address to share publicly with customers, business partners, and investors. And you'll never need to worry about someone showing up at your door if you run your business from home. Now, I've checked out Earth Class Mail, and I think it's a brilliant solution that's perfect for businesses and independent entrepreneurs of all types. Visit freelancershow.com slash mail, and you'll get your first month of service free when you sign up. That's freelancershow.com slash mail. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 206 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Philip Morgan. Hello, hello. Ruben Lerner. Hi, everyone. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Quick shout out about Ruby Remote Conf if you're interested in that. This episode will probably come out right before it starts. So anyway, just making you aware. We also have a special guest this week, and that's Gavin Ballard. Hello, all. I failed to say that in my best Australian accent. Do you want to introduce yourself? That's all right. I'll, I'll do it for you. Uh, hi, my name is Gavin Ballard. I'm an Australian. Uh, however, I live in Sweden. So any Swedish travel tips, you're able to, to write in and, and ask me. I run a small, a small agency called Disco. We're a remote-based um, couple of people uh, in, in Sweden and then around Europe and the world. Uh, and we're, we're really focused on, on developing applications for Shopify. So if you're familiar with Shopify, we do pretty much exclusively work with custom builds for that. And I think, that, I think that's it. I think that's my intro. So the topic on the docket today is going from solo to agency. And I will tell you that this is something that I failed miserably at. And so I'm kind of curious to see what advice you have. I mean, my focus is different these days, but yeah. yeah. I mean, what did I do wrong, right? Well, uh, I, I guess I'm wondering at the moment, what, what am I doing wrong right now? And uh, yeah, it's certainly, I'm, I'm certainly in the very early stages. So I mentioned, uh, well, actually, I don't, I don't think I mentioned in the intro, but we're about uh, we're three full-time equivalent people at Cisco. So we're still very much on the, the very early stages stage of, of building an agency. And so there's a lot of mistakes that I'm making at the moment and expecting to make a lot more. But um, yeah, I just I thought it'd be really interesting to, to chat to you guys and sort of talk about what's involved and, and why it makes sense to start transitioning from solo to agency. Um, and even if it's a good idea, if it's working out whether it's a, a good fit, because I think for a lot of people, like freelancing is a pretty great thing to do. And even though it maybe seems like it's stressful at times. From my experience, tra making the transition to, to starting to hire people and being responsible for others and things like that comes with a whole nother set of problems. Yeah. So let's just start with kind of why you would want to do this. I mean, so I went freelance and after a few years, my father-in-law kept telling me, well, you should hire people and then, then you won't have to work as much and you'll still be making plenty of money. <laughs> uh, your your father-in-law is an optimist. I would say. Yeah. <laughs> and and as I as I started doing it, I figured out that what really happened was I wound up doing more of the sales and project management, and somebody else wound up doing more of the coding. And so, yeah, it didn't necessarily cut my hours so much. In some ways, I think if I could have built a larger team, I would have made more money. But ultimately, yeah, that didn't quite work out for me. So what is a realistic expectation? Why would you want to make this transition then if you're not going to get necessarily more money or more time out of it? Or at least in the beginning, you don't. Yeah, I, I think it sort of makes sense to have some sort of like end goal or that you can only really achieve with the team. So for me, working in the field that I do with, with Shopify apps, what I'm really interested in is, is ultimately transitioning more and more away from, from client work and more to building our own apps that we can sell and sort of essentially having a, a product business. And, you know, and that's, that's a long road and it's going to take a while before we can actually do that. But to do that and build the sort of apps I want to build uh, and be able to support them and maintain them, that's the sort of thing that um, 
that you kind of need you need a pretty good team for. Um, it's not the sort of thing that I think is easy to do as a as a solo person is running a, a suite of of apps. So that's kind of my major rationale behind it is having this thing that I need to be able to do or that I can only really see me doing with a team. And another thing that I, I think, it, at least it's part of my reasoning, I don't know whether it's good reasoning or not, but um, I guess my background is as a developer, I'm kind of interested in in building things. And uh, to me, like an agency, a business is another thing to build. And so I, I'm kind of interested in, in working out, you know, how to how to do that with it with the business. So how do you start hiring people? How do you start putting an organization and processes in place? And even though that a lot of that sounds pretty boring, and a lot of the time it is pretty boring, I guess it's it's another challenge. I guess so. I think that having some sort of idea of why you might want to make that transition is useful, rather than just being like, oh well, I'm a freelancer and I've got more work coming in than I that I want to handle, I guess the next thing is to start an agency. Like doing it for the sake of it doesn't seem to be a great, a great strategy. That's what I did. I mean, I started as a <laughs> yeah, freelancer and I had more work than I knew what to do with. And I said, oh, well, I guess the, the natural thing to do is, is hire people, right? So I started, you know, I hired one person and I got up to, I think I was up to a total of five people working for me. And then the bottom dropped out of the, you know, in the dot-com implosion of 2000. Mm-hmm. And then I had to lay people off. Uh, and, that like and, and everything, everything about that whole thing, like finding people and then having to find enough work to to keep them paid and then laying them off left quite a bitter taste in my mouth. So I do have someone working for me now, but it's on a very different basis. And um I mean power to you for, for getting it to work. But I am curious to know what the structure is. Are you partners or have you hired employees? No, they I mean they're officially they're contractors because because we are remote for legal reasons, it makes it really tricky to to hire people from an Australian company overseas. So we have to, yeah, basically do it on a, on a contract basis and make sure that we're not falling afoul of any Australian employment laws, which so far we haven't. Um, so that yeah, neither of them are partners in the business, so I own own it a hundred percent, and that's working pretty well to date. But yeah, it is like. If you think that working as a freelancer and making sure you get enough money in the door to pay yourself every month is stressful at times, then yeah, certainly the biggest thing that I, I struggle with at the moment is you know I have this this base number that I need to make sure comes in the door every month, um, which is three people's salaries, and if it doesn't, then I'm in trouble. <laughs> I'm in trouble basically. So far, I haven't got to a stage where I've had to skip my own paycheck, but I can imagine that could happen. I mean, it's definitely still not out of the woods in that uh, respect, having to worry about that. I did that a couple of times. wasn't fun. No, I can't imagine it's super fun. And yeah, if you're a freelancer, again, like you, you can do that. You can not make your own payroll and you're the only one that suffers from it. But I mean, when I've worked with other agencies, when I was a freelancer or a contractor, if I was on the other side of that and someone didn't make payroll for me, then that would have left such a bad taste in my mouth I just would never want to work with them again so I think it's yeah it's it's something you definitely have I mean you just have to avoid it if you don't do that then um you're certainly just letting yourself down and business isn't going to work yeah I do have to say that I did let the folks that had been working for me know I haven't been paid yet but here's your money (laughs) right and so I'm, I'm working on getting paid myself but you know you worked and you shouldn't be penalized for it and I mean that that built some loyalty, but it really sucked. Yeah, I don't. I don't even. As I said, I'm, I'm lucky enough that I haven't had to worry about that yet. Touchwood. I don't know if I would want to tell <laughs> the employees that that was the situation. That might get them uh, a bit bit skittish if they were worried about uh, getting paid the week, the month after that, or, or something. But um, yeah, the, yeah. The, I was just letting them know the contract had ended. I was pretty much done having them work for me at the time. So. There wasn't that concern. It was just I was letting them know, hey, I have a collection issue. Here's what I can pay you now. And for most of them, it was everything I owed them. And then the people who I thought would be more understanding, it was like, I'll get you the rest next month, which I did. But, yeah, it it, it was no fun. And by communicating that the next time that I did get a gig, they were totally willing to come out and work for me because they knew that I would do whatever it took to pay them. So winding back a little bit to when you said uh, when we were talking about like which route you could go down 
maybe build it like you build out an agency because it seemed like the logical thing to do I guess do you like looking back at it now do you wish you'd done something differently so the real thing that I ran into with my setup was that sometimes I could find work where it clearly required me to build a team and that worked out well as far as going toward agency the problem was was that I would get into the thick of that contract and then I wouldn't find another contract that would support a team. And if I brought – so I would bring in a bunch of basically solo jobs and then I would farm them out to the team that I had. And then my clients would get frustrated because either I wasn't working on it or they felt like, well, we could have hired this guy and not paid your overhead on him. Mm-hmm. And so that that's kind of where things fell apart. Uh, during sales, it was hard because a lot of times people would come and they would want me to do the work, which I couldn't always do. And sometimes it would fall apart because of the other thing where, you know, they'd hire me. I'd tell them I was going to have someone on my team working with them. I would do all of the project management and, you know, work between the client and my developer on my team. But in the end, they would be frustrated because, well, we could have just hired this guy and paid him less. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think maybe you could have avoided that or would a viable alternative have been to just like flat out re- reject any work that was coming in that was too big for one person to handle? I could have done that. I think honestly at this point looking back on things, I think it would have been made way more sense for me to just focus on one way or the other, right? Either, okay, I'm going to take jobs that I can do on my own or I'm only going to take jobs that it makes sense to have an agency work on. In other words, mm-hmm. there's so much work here that I need a team. And that way I wouldn't be handing out jobs that legitimately somebody would be wanting to hire me to do the work myself. It, it would have been understood, hey, this is a big enough load of work to where, you know, clearly you're going to hire other people to do some of it or all of mm-hmm. it. And if I had committed to, okay, here's kind of the minimum size project we're going to take and then focused on that and specialized a little, which is another thing I've learned since then, then I think I would have been much better off. And I think that's probably why it works for you in Shopify, is that you're, you're focused in on a specific type of work, and you know what a project look like, looks like that is successful for your team. And I didn't have that. Yeah, I th- I, having a, a very specific niche is, is quite useful. So Shopify's just Shopify itself is a big enough pool that is, um, like it's, it seems like a niche, but it's actually quite a big market and it's growing. And we, we started out doing very much anything to do with Shopify. So we were sort of building out people's front-end themes or getting them set up on Shopify. But but since then, we've, we've focused more and more on just doing the application development side of things, which is a smaller niche again. And I guess it's a more lucrative niche, I would say, because application development projects are typically bigger jobs than, than something where you're just doing a store setup or a, a bit of theme development. And there's not that many people that are out there that say, we just do Shopify app development. So so that's been pretty helpful. And it's also app development is the sort of stuff that it does make sense to have a team do rather than, than one specific person. I do have a few problems with sort of what you were talking about with people expect or clients expecting me personally to be doing a lot of the work because a lot of the a lot of the inbound leads we get are through my personal blogs that has my name attached to it and a lot of the stuff that I do in the Shopify sphere is very much my face on it. So a lot of the time people are, I guess, expecting me personally to be working on things, which isn't always the case, but I, I guess I can assure people, at least at this stage, that we're, we're small enough that any project that comes through, I mean, I'm still in the stage where I'm project managing it, I'm reviewing everything that comes through. So it's very much got my, my fingerprints all over it. Yeah, and I, I mean, I would make some of those same guarantees, right? It's my project. I'm involved in it. You know, I'm not just going to hand it off and not be involved, but I'm going to be checking the quality. It does have my name on it. I do take this seriously, but, you know, on occasion, it just wasn't enough. I mean, they wanted me, and they were unhappy that I, they didn't get me all the time. Yeah, I mean, that's, I guess it's all part of, um, of how you market and what sort of process you set up for your clients in terms of, setting their expectations and making it really clear about how a particular project's going to run, which of course is, you know, easy for me to say in reality, our processes around that constantly need improvement and I'm constantly trying to to work on those, but we'll get there eventually, I guess. 
Yeah, I mean, I've, I've definitely had this sort of issue over the years. I mean, even now with my sole employee, but certainly when I had a bunch of people working for me, I found I was very good at marketing myself and very bad at convincing people to come to my company and work for the, work with the guy who's working for me. So how, what sort of marketing do you do that gives you that sort of flexibility or that, that allows people to feel comfortable working with your team or anyone on it? Uh, it's, it's just the classic bait and switch. I, I lure them in <laughs> with my name. And then, <laughs> no, uh, that's true. I mean, I try to make it as, as clear as possible that you are hiring Disco, the agency, not me, Gavin. Still, although I guess I, I am the main point of contact for all major leads coming through. As, as I mentioned, we get a lot of work through sort of content marketing. So posts I've written on my vlog, most of the work that we get is either through that or word of mouth referrals. And usually the word of mouth referrals are people referring me personally because I'm the person that, that has been dealing with the client all the time. So even if someone else actually did the work, all of the word of mouth referrals will be, oh, you should talk to Gavin. It's definitely tough, but generally what I've, I've found is that if someone else is, is actually doing the work um, and you know we try to get our clients really closely involved to the to the code and the apps we build. So the clients are sort of in our GitHub, raising issues, commenting, talking to the actual developer who's working on the, the particular issue. So once that starts happening and they say, oh, well, you know, the work's actually getting done, things are happening, and, you know, I'm there chiming in and offering advice or, or you know, commenting on pull requests and stuff like that. I haven't, haven't heard anyone sort of be upset and come back to me and say, hey, we thought we were hiring you and instead, you know, this other guy's working away on this stuff. So I don't think it's been a problem for us yet. If it does, I guess I'll have to sort of, like I was saying, maybe work on making it more clear in our onboarding process that that's what's happening rather than it being you are hiring me for this project. All right. One thing that I want to get into is, uh, and this is something that I ran into and I struggled with, was my role changed when I tried to build the team and do the agency thing, I self-identified as a coder and it's taken me a long time to get over this. And we've talked a little bit about this with Marcus Blankenship, you know, regarding, you know, people getting promoted essentially to management. And then it's like, yeah, but I'm a coder and I'm, I'm now a fraud because I don't code <laughs> every day. Right. For me, I struggled a bit because I really did want to write the code and I wanted to be that technical expert. And I felt like, I was sort of letting people down and letting, you know, letting go of something important to me and letting go of my roots. Uh, do you find that you face that very much and how do you get around it? Very, very much so. Um, it's, yeah, mentioning Marcus is uh, everything that he writes on this has been really, really helpful to me. So I've read all of his articles, been to a couple of uh, his his webinars and connected with him through an online course I'm taking. So it's re really been helpful to have his his input on a lot of this stuff. But yeah, it, it is really, really difficult, especially if your background is is technical and a developer and you tend to be a bit of a perfectionist like I am to, to let go of the, the code being exactly the way that, you know, that you would write it. Maybe it's a little bit different and it takes a lot to get over that. I don't know if there's any really great strategy for that apart from just having the time pressures of, of coming to a stage where you're like, well, I don't actually have time to review this and in excruciating detail and provide, you know, feedback on every single little thing and just having to do it a couple of times and let it go. Maybe there's no strategy or that you can use that helps with that. One thing I found kind of helpful is to very much document the different roles that I'm undertaking. So like you said, when you're starting out, you're wearing a lot of hats. So, you know, I'm still I'm still doing development. I'm still doing project management. I'm still doing invoicing. Um, more and more of that stuff is getting slowly split out. And, you know, I have a bookkeeper, so soon she's going to be able to do all of the invoicing and things like that. But what I found kind of useful was documenting those roles independently. Um, so even though I was doing them all, I, I sort of would write out, okay, so this is the, the bookkeeping role and this is what you're responsible for and this is what you, you have to do. And that's sort of part of a, a bigger 
process document that we have for all the different stuff that happens in the business, but breaking out those roles so that when the time comes to actually chisel that off and hand it out off to someone, that's a much easier process because it's, it's well documented. And it also means that it kind of when you're switching between those jobs day to day, it's easier to know what you should be working on because if you're looking at that document, you say, okay, I've got my project manager hat on at the moment. So all I should be doing is looking through the tasks in Asana, making sure everyone's got something to work on, making sure that the client's updated on the status of this project and don't even think about clicking that link to go and check that pull request on GitHub because you know that's not your job right now. So I think like being able to mentally separate those roles is really, really important, especially if you are in a position uh, like I, I still am and maybe you, you still were where you're still actually doing some development as well as trying to manage everything else at the same time. Yeah, I have to say, so my focus has gone from finding clients and getting work and doing work to, at this point, I spend a lot of my time making the podcasts and scheduling stuff for the podcasts and doing the online conferences. And so, you know, my my total business has shifted. I'm, I'm not in the business of writing code anymore, but I do have coders that work for me along with other people. And for me, the transition has been, uh, and this is going to sound really, really trite and really dumb, but <laughs> what I did is I changed my title from podcast host and developer to CEO. And so what that's done is it's forced me to say, okay, is this something the CEO would do? And my answer is, well, yes, if crap is on fire, then yes, the CEO will do whatever it takes, right? But otherwise, you know, who should be doing it? Like, who should have this job? Who should have this role? And you talked about that. And that, that way I can say, okay, well, Mandy should have this role. Mandy's my podcast producer and uh, personal assistant. Or I need to find somebody to have this role. And so I hired a bookkeeper. And because I'm taking those things and looking at it and saying, yeah, this is stuff that the CEO does not do in the company, it's forced me to look at things and say, that's not my job. I'm doing the job now because there's no one else, but I need to find somebody else. And that's put me in that position where it's now, okay, I am not the developer. I'm capable. Sometimes I jump in because I need something done, but that's not my job. That sounds like a really good strategy. I'm still a little bit torn personally about whether I want to... I, I think realistically, I, I should be looking for ways to get myself out of the day-to-day -day coding. But as a, I'm a developer, that's what I like. To, yeah. That's what I like doing. What I think my my next step is is finding a project manager because that's the sort of stuff that I'm not great at, and that's the sort of stuff that I don't want to be doing. Um, and I feel like if I've got that role carved out um, and what that entails, and I'm doing it at the moment, but if I could find someone else to to give that specific role to, then I can spend my time where I think I'm, I'm going to have the most leverage on the business, which at the moment I think is doing the stuff, trying to find trying to find new clients, doing the sales, doing the marketing, onboarding new clients, looking at the business as a whole, et cetera, et cetera. But also considering the size we're at, still being available to to help out with development, but in a situation where I'm I'm just a resource rather than I'm both the project manager and lead developer and things like that. I can just be, you know, two days a week, you can assign me however you want, but it's up to you to decide what I'm working on and, and what I need to get done in that time. Because I think, yeah, that's where my big sticking point at the moment is the mental context switching between managing projects and developing and all the other fun sort of stuff that you have to do when you're, when you're trying to run an agency. You know, Back when I was in college, so I was the uh, editor-in-chief of the student newspaper for a year. It was a semester. And um, I was also the most experienced writer because you get to be editor as like a, a student in your final year. So I was the most experienced writer. And every week, or twice a week, I would choose the hardest, most important story to, to write. Why? Because, well, I was the most experienced writer. And so what would happen? Every week, I was the bottleneck. I was the reason the paper was not getting out on time because I was insisting on writing these stories. And that lesson was completely lost on me. Like, I didn't realize how much frustration I was causing to other people until years later when I had employees and I realized, you know what? If I've hired good people, then I need to be able to step back. I need to be able to let them do the work and not interfere and do other things, whether it's bringing a new business or talking to clients or doing my own work and letting them do what they want semi-independently. And that has worked out 
much better, not surprisingly. It's funny. It yeah. sounds a lot like the conversation we had in episode 200 with Mandy and I. Yeah. Do I? Do you trust her? Do you, you know? You can do the work, but that's not the point. Yeah. It's also if you don't give that sort of high level work to to other people, then they're not going to grow, and they're not going to be challenged in in what they're doing with you. Um, so they're less likely to want to stick around and, and keep working for for you, and they're not going to get better as as developers themselves. So you're sort of cutting yourself twice if you're hogging only the biggest and most challenging bits of work for yourself. And what I've been trying to be really conscious of is not taking on projects that I wouldn't personally be interested in working on myself because I think if it's something that I, I wouldn't want to do myself, then why would a, another developer be necessarily interested interested in it? And because realistically, like you know, there's always a very real possibility that I will have to do it myself if some disaster happens and suddenly the development team gets wiped out and then I'm on the hook for the, the project, then I am actually going to have to sit down and do it. So trying to keep that in mind has been Again, it's tricky, especially when you have these payroll pressures now. But um, so far, I've managed to avoid saying yes to anything that's made me feel too compromising of that principle. Well, the other thing is, is you can only... So I only have so much capability for certain types of work, right? I can only get so much done during the day. So if I want to accomplish everything that I need to accomplish, I have to have other people involved. I mean, there's just no other way around it. And I find that that's the case in a lot of different businesses. You know, they're just, that, that's the way it is. That's where you're at. And so if you can't find people you can trust, then you can't move ahead in that way. But there are people out there that you can trust. There are people out there who will do a good job for you. And... So, you, you know, if you're hiring the right people, then there's no reason why you can't achieve what we're talking about here. Hmm. Yeah, well, that probably leads into one of the other things that I think um, would be interesting to talk about, which is how to find these people. <laughs> Any tips that you guys have? Upwork. Very much, appreci- uh, very much appreciated. Upwork. Mm, okay. Have you had success with that? Uh, I have for not programmer things. So, for example, you know, I've, I've had video editors that I found on Upwork. Our transcriptionists for the shows are on Upwork, but hiring programmers, I've had kind of hit or miss. And so some people have turned out really well. I have one developer that's been working for me for like three years or something now. But then at the same time, I've had others that, you know, they worked out for a while and then, you know, did something terrible uh, or did something inexcusable, I should say, you know, where they mouthed off to a client or, you know, they did terrible work and I had to let them go. But yeah, it's just... Yeah, I I don't know. I don't know that you can really completely know without hiring somebody and having them do work first. Mm. For someone, so I mentioned before that I'm, I guess, a project manager, I guess, is my sticking point at the moment. So do you have any recommendations on how I might be able to seek out someone who might be good at that role? And then what sort of, so, so, so for a developer, I have a process that I follow to hire them. I have a test project that I know inside out that I can give to people and we we run that as sort of like a paid test engagement. Um, I see where they get stuck, whether they ask questions, how well they communicate, that sort of stuff. But for when it comes to something like project management, like how do you how do you test for someone being a, a good project manager? I've never hired one, so I don't know. I mean, with any other job, I give them very clear expectations as far as what they want. And I usually give them a test project if I can. And usually if you have a a clear idea of what you want them to do, then you can at least ask leading questions that will get you to the point where you're like, oh, okay, this person can clearly do what I want them to. And then it's just a matter of, can I work with them? Mm, yeah, I'm just trying to develop a strategy <laughs> for how to, how to do this. But yeah, I, I think I'll have to work out similarly to how we do interviews for, for developers and have that sort of test project, have something like that lined up. Um, it's just a, it's a little trickier when, when it comes to, I, again, this because it's not something that I'm naturally good at or don't feel like I'm naturally good at is the process of, of managing and scheduling projects. Um, I think it can be really tough to interview for someone Oh, interview someone who you don't really know what their their job looks like when it's done right in a similar way that I imagine non-technical people have a difficult time hiring, say, a programmer or a developer. It can be really, really difficult to evaluate the work and probably you're right that the best way to do it is just to get some work under the belt and see how things work out. I'm, I'm always curious if there's sort of like a valley, like a profitability valley you have to make it through to make that transition from solo to, to agency. 
So, I mean, did your margins go up or down or are you uh, seeing profit go up or down as you make this transition? Yeah. So uh, in terms of if there's a valley, then we're, we're definitely at the bottom of it at the moment, or at <laughs> least I, <laughs> I am personally. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, if I stayed on the course, if I decided to just stick with freelancing and just stay as a, a solo shop and done all the classic sort of stuff that, that you guys talk about all the time when you stay as a freelancer, so double my rates, be more selective with my clients, et cetera, et cetera, then my personal income would be over double what it is right now. Yeah, but shouldn't so, you be doing those things anyway? Uh, yes. I mean, I, I think definitely in terms of, I think a lot of the good advice around things you should do when you're starting an agency is very much exactly the same as what you should be doing when you're freelancing in being more selective with clients, et cetera, et cetera. I just think there's some inefficiencies baked into the um, into the process of having people that means that three people working in an agency does not necessarily mean, or at least in my experience, does not mean you get three times the income of a high-end freelancer. So yeah, in terms of the personal profitability, profitability for for me, it's definitely not at the same level as it would be otherwise. In terms of of, of margins, I think the the rule that I've heard around the traps in terms of what you should be making on people who are working for you is sort of around sixty forty. So um, whatever you're billing someone out at to be working effectively and give yourself enough margin to be profitable, they should be keeping about 60% of it and you should be keeping 40. Um, I know some agencies that to are more on the towards the 50-50 range, but 60-40 is kind of what I shoot for and that has worked out pretty well. Like I think that looks sustainable as we grow and hopefully, again, as we grow and, and get a bit more efficient at running projects through our pipeline as our utilization is still probably a bit up and down in terms of what percentage of hours are actually billable to, for the developers at the moment it's probably not where where i'd like it to be so once that sort of stuff gets fine-tuned i think at least in theory uh it should be we should be in a position where i am able to raise my salary and and get closer to that number where i'm back to where i would be if i was just sticking around and freelancing that's great. I mean, all those details are just, I think, the the part that people don't see when they think about the rainbows and unicorns of having staff, right, or having employees. That's great. I, I, yeah. I should add, by the way, that I also have a 60-40 split with my, uh, with my employees, so it's interesting that you came up with the same thing. Um, but because he's an employee and not a contractor, I have to pay benefits on top of that. And I'm okay with that because I really value him, and he's amazing and great and helps me a lot. But my accountant thinks that I'm nuts. And he says, you should be earning much more from your employees and you are not getting enough out of them. Now, my accountant also keeps losing staff because he doesn't pay them enough. So <laughs> I, I, th I think there's a correlation here that he's missing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that could, that's, that's interesting. I'm glad to hear that 60-40 is, is where you're at as well, Reuben. And I, I think I, ideally I would actually like to have – employees rather than the contracting situation we're in at the moment, mostly because I think that would actually tilt the scales in in terms of, I mean, obviously you're paying someone as a contractor, you are having to compensate for, for benefits and just naturally it's because the work is a little less certain, I guess, from their perspective, you're paying a slightly higher higher rate. So, I mean, I feel like I'm in a position where we could we could lock down these, these people as employees and that could potentially work out well for everyone. On the flip side, it is, I guess, nice as an employer having a bit more flexibility in the sense that if everything does go south and we have three months of, of no no work coming in, then I'm a bit more flexible in terms of, you know, I don't have to worry about paying heaps of severance pay or anything like that, especially as uh, I'm in Sweden. One of the other contractors who works here is in Sweden and the level of worker protection uh, in this country is expensive to say the least for uh, for employers. Speaking of that, you know, that possibility of having to lay somebody off, I'm curious if you've learned anything about managing your pipeline because I bet even for people who don't have a team, there's probably some, you know, kind of takeaways you've got. You're trying to move a bigger a bigger needle, but it's the same thing. It's like how do you make sure three, six months from now you've got work? 
Yeah, um, it's probably one of the things that again I need to I need to work on. I'm certainly a lot better at it now than I was a year ago. And the, the pressure or the fact that you have people that you need to support certainly makes a big change in in how seriously you take that sort of thing. So we have about a, a three months worth of work booked out at the moment, which is is pretty good. Like obviously, I would like to extend that out in terms of how we do that. I mean, one of the great things about the sort of work we do in the application development sort of thing is that they're they're very rarely pants on fire. The world is, is crashing and burning. Um, this needs to get done tomorrow. Sort of projects. So usually, when clients come to us, they're actually they're not expecting work to be done the next week. So we can say to them, you know, we're looking to book this in. We can we can do that in six weeks, in eight weeks, or something like that. And whereas for some types of work, I feel like that pushes the client off to a different agency or a different firm. Mostly, clients seem to be to be okay with that. I mentioned before that I do a fair bit of, of content marketing. I mean, I'd, I've never thought of it as content marketing. I've always thought of it as just writing blogs about things that I'm interested in. And so I get a fairly consistent stream of, of inquiries through that. So that's something that I think, you know, that keeps working even when I'm not out actively looking for, for clients or anything like that. We have a lot of um, a lot of material that's that's focused towards other developers and other agencies in our space. So I, I have uh, a course on building Shopify themes. I have a course that's that's in progress on building Shopify apps. And so while that those sort of products are targeted at at other developers rather than ultimately our clients. It does mean that it gets into the hands of people who run agencies. And so, for example, a lot of the work that we get that's referral-based is from people who are running agencies that do, say, Shopify uh, Shopify store setups or Shopify theme build-outs or things like that, but they don't have app development experience. Um, and so, because we've been in their face with this this course and other material, they refer us uh, refer the clients through to us. Um, so I feel like those are sort of the two the two main sources of client referrals, and they're both things that sort of we don't need to be actively maintaining. So I think that's probably the best thing we've done in terms of getting an ongoing pipeline of work coming in. Again, always lots of um, things to do to sort of improve that and get out to a wider audience. Um, but that so far seems to be the best way for us to to have a, a marketing pipeline coming in without having to spend too much time actively chasing chasing up leads. And your content is focused enough that the people that you want to attract are finding it? Um, yeah. When I, when I first started writing about Shopify stuff, there was very little that was out there. It's becoming a bigger market, so it's becoming you need to have um, more content being written, I guess, to stand out. But like I said, if you're a, I'd say if you're a Shopify agency or a Shopify developer and you're interested in building apps and you you Google, then um, either my name or Disco will be in the Google search results for, for most things that you're searching for. Um, or you'll run into me in one of the, the Slack channels or the forums or, or something like that. So um, I've sort of spread a pretty wide web. Again, like it wasn't necessarily a, a conscious strategy on my part. It's just, you know, a side effect of being really interested in the space and being involved in it for quite some time. Uh, and yeah, generally people people who are interested in Shopify development tend to, to find us. And that's actually been a really, because uh, as I mentioned, a lot of the stuff we've been creating and putting out there is developer focused. Um, it's also been a really great source of inbound leads when it comes to hiring developers. So I've had there's one of the, one of the um, contractors who's who's full time with us reached out to me and said, "Oh, hey, I, I'm really interested in learning how to build Shopify apps. Would you like to have coffee sometime?" And I was like, "Sure, I would love to love to talk to you about Shopify apps." And that just it just worked out in terms of having someone reach out to me at exactly the right time when I was looking to start. Growing. Well, if you're in the content marketing success story, can you walk me through the, the process of choosing that niche within the, the larger Shopify ecosystem? I'm curious, what's the first thing you saw where you said, you know, I think there's something here. I think this could be a, a way we focus our business. Ooh, I, I wish I could give you some sort of like high level. This was a, I mean, choosing Shopify itself was me just completely falling into it. Really, I had a friend that wanted to set up a, an online store, and this maybe seven years ago or something, and and I helped him out. We we used 
we decided to use Shopify for some unbeknownst re- reason, um, and I just started playing around with it, with it from there. When it came to, to niching down really hard on on the app development side of things, realistically, the thing that made me think there was something there was that someone asked me to build an app for them and offered me money for it, and I thought, well, okay, sure. And, and I guess that had always been more appealing to me. My, my background is as a as a software engineer rather than a a designer or a front-end developer per se. Um, so that was something that I was I was more interested in. And I guess at the same time, I was also seeing almost everyone else that was working with Shopify was focused on the setup and the front-end development side of things. And there was almost no one who was exclusively building apps. So I guess there was a little bit of intention behind it in that uh, I saw that at least one person was willing to pay for this app and no one else seemed to be offering it as as a service exclusively so uh, i thought well let's let's try and um see if we can get away with with running a business exclusive doing exclusively doing application sort of stuff so it it sounds like you you kind of saw a hole in the market and you got some really nice validation and that someone paid you and you, you saw the connection between those two things. I'm curious if it was ever at any point there was some any fear involved. Like, did you doubt whether that would be a good idea to narrow down or how did that part of it work? I did and I, I still do, to be honest. So more and more larger agencies are sort of adding app development to their portfolio. So they'll do, they'll do everything from the front end development to the setup to the app, app, app dev as well. So that is certainly, I guess, a bit, a bit concerning. So I'm thinking maybe I do need to think about going back and generalizing um, and offering those all of the, the services in order to compete. But then my you know, Philip Morgan um, tells me, no, <laughs> niche down, hold tight. Um, so, so it's definitely concerning. At the same time, I just feel like no one in the space can build apps as well as we can right now because it's all we do. I don't think any agency has built as many as we have. And we certainly have a lot of experience with a lot of different types of apps and we can do it pretty efficiently. I think I'm happy at the moment to stay focused where we are with the app development. And, you know, if if that changes, (laughs) I'll ring you up and say, Philip, it's not working. But... um, For the time being, you can probably run circles around the larger competitors. Yeah, well, I mean that's that's what we're we're trying to do, um, mm-hmm. and I'll I'll stick with it for for the moment. It's a growing market. Um, Shopify is certainly very aggressively expanding. So even if you know these other agencies are starting to to pick up more of that development work, then um, you know we can niche down even further, I guess, and and say, well, we'll tackle the the big enterprise app development jobs that you know. Uh, an agency that's been developing apps for six months just has no hope of of being able to deal with the complexity or, or something like that. So certainly something I think about, but hopefully not something that's um, that's fatal. Yeah. Oh, thank you for that. I'm wondering what it would take. I mean, and, and the answer might be you don't know or you're hoping never to get there, but what would it take to sort of convince you, wow, this was really a mistake? I mean, you said already that you're you're – you know, personal income has gone down in the hopes, obviously, that it'll go up by a lot, right? I mean, obviously, this is not just for fun. This is to have a successful business, and we're all hoping you get there. But what would it take for you to say, you know what, boy, this was really a bad idea. I should go back just to working on my own. I think that if after, basically, if, if things stagnated, so if after a year, if, if we came back and did this podcast in a year, and I was in the same position with the same same revenue numbers, the same number of people working on the same sort of projects, then I would feel like, you know, maybe I'm not doing this right or something else is wrong. So I think it would be more that rather than any particular revenue number or personal income number. It would be more if I felt like things weren't weren't moving forward. 
Certainly, I'm not expecting that I'm going to be able to get back to freelancing personal income, you know, in, in six months, in a year. I mean, hope, hopefully it will happen at, at some stage. And then I also have the asset of the business itself, which by that time will will hopefully have some, some assets in the form of these apps that we're planning on building. But yeah, I feel like it would be more just sort of feeling like, nothing's happening, the business isn't isn't moving forward. And not necessarily having that be, well, we didn't hire 10 people last year, like what's happening? Um, I think I'd be very happy having a, a smaller size, size agency. But if the type of work we were doing sort of started to feel like it was stagnating, I think that would be the biggest red flag for me. So if somebody decided, you know what, I think this agency is a great idea for me, what should they do? Do you have like three things that they should think about or implement to get started? Um, so in general, I would say basically all of the material out there that teaches you to be a better freelancer. So this podcast, Brennan Dunn's material, Philip's stuff, anything that's sort of focused on on streamlining your processes as a as a freelancer, streamlining the things that you do as a business owner, I think they're completely 100% applicable and maybe even a prerequisite to starting to make that transition to become an agency. The more you have your processes locked down, the more you have a system for onboarding and dealing with clients, the more you're charging, the easier and easier it's going to be to start running an agency. Another thing that I think is is really powerful that I, I'm only sort of just realizing is, uh, I mean, I knew it in the back of my head, but until you actually <laughs> sit down and live it, it never really gets highlighted that much, which is um, how useful recurring revenue is in a business, especially when you start hiring people and you have a base number of um, dollars per month you need to spend in payroll. Um, so when I say recurring revenue for us, that includes sort of the revenue we make from a couple of info products. So I mentioned the the courses earlier, but also I would sort of in the context of an agency lump in um, retainers in that. So if you're able to develop relationships with, with clients um, from the very and, and sort of set up your relationship with client from the very first meeting to sort of be looking beyond the initial project and try and work out how you can help them on an ongoing basis and try and, and work out uh, what sort of retainer package might be appealing to them. If, if you can lock that down, then, you know, it's a great, great way to give yourself a bit of confidence in the fact that you're you're going to be getting X number of dollars in per month. And that makes th- certainly makes things like hiring someone a lot easier to do because you don't have that nervousness around hiring. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get to some picks. Philip, do you have some picks for us? I do. I have been recording a lot of videos of me doing stuff on my computer lately <laughs> for various reasons. And just was reminded how great ScreenFlow is. So that's a desktop screencast recording software, and it's good for even dummies like me. (laughs) So that's my first pick. I want to remind folks there's a email crash course that I offer on positioning. If the idea of doing what Gavin mentioned and picking a more profitable area of your business to focus on is interesting, uh, you can find that at positioningcrashcourse.com. That's it. Those are my picks for this week. All right. Reuben, what about you? So first of all, I'll, I'll just echo what Philip said about ScreenFlow. I've used it for a while. I use none, but none of the fancy features, and it works like a charm. It's just great. So my picks are, first of all, Marvin Minsky, who was a famous computer scientist, thinker, inventor, amazing guy. Uh, so he died uh, just in the last month or two. And so I've been looking through some of the things that he wrote, and uh, he has this amazing book called The Society of Mind, um, which talks about how the mind works, human thought. Every chapter is one page, and it's a really simply presented theory of how the mind works that's very, very accessible and and interesting and really can change the way you think about yourself, other people, teaching, children, you name it. So definitely highly recommended. And the other one is, um, I think it was last week on the show, we talked about you know having landing pages and crash courses and so forth. So I'm now putting the finishing touches on a regexcrashcourse.com, regexcrashcourse. Uh, I'll, I'll put that in the show notes so that you don't have to stumble through trying to spell regexp, which is R-E-G-E-X-P, of course. And that's an introduction to regular expressions uh, in an email campaign, you know, email course, that can try to uh, help people who don't know about them but want to learn about them, uh, learn about them. 
Anyway, that's it for this week from, uh, from me, Picks. All right. I've got a couple of picks here. One of my picks is something that I've been using for a while, and I'm sure I've picked it on the show before, but I've just kind of fallen in love with it all over again, and that's Trello. So if you don't know, Trello is kind of a Kanban-style board, and it's pretty awesome. You can set up whatever workflow you want in it. I've actually been using it for a couple of things. One is for onboarding guests. I'm going to start having them fill out a form on the website, and that's actually going to drop into Trello. So uh, it'll drop it into Trello. Um, I'll have their whole profile and everything in there that they fill out along with any suggestions they have for other guests on the show. And that's all being done with Gravity Forms on WordPress and Zapier. And so I'm going to pick those as well. Gravity Forms basically creates a feed that Zapier can pull from and then Zapier puts it into Trello and it's pretty nice. Uh, They also have integrations for Facebook. They have integrations for Twitter. They have integrations for hundreds and hundreds of other things in Zapier and it's really handy. So uh, just putting that out there and and letting you know that, uh, that, yeah, that's out there. If you do Ruby, I'm going to also mention uh, Ruby Remote Conf, uh, which comes out, I think it comes out like the week after we uh, record this. So if you want tickets, you got to move quick. It's at the end of June. But yeah, we've got some fairly notable Ruby folks speaking. That includes uh, Sarah May, uh, Phil Spittler, Justin Collins, Marcus Blankenship. All of them have been on the Ruby Rogues podcast. Dan Chandler, I think he's been on too. Ryan Francis. Uh, Still working on a few other folks that you've also heard of before, I'm sure, and really looking forward to some awesome talks. So if you do Ruby or you want to learn Ruby, then this is going to be terrific. And uh, yeah, those are my picks. Yeah, and I've I've got a a couple just to to chime in. Um, Firstly, to back up what Philip and Ruben said about ScreenFlow, it is excellent. If you're looking for something that is a little more lightweight, I can highly recommend a service called LookBack, which is at lookback.io. And it's really great for doing really, really quick screencasts. And then they automatically upload and host those videos for you. So I use it all the time for demoing stuff to clients. Just takes a couple of minutes, so highly recommend that. And then the other thing I thought I'd just quickly recommend was a series of blog posts by uh, Brian Cartarella, who um, he he's, it's very appropriate to the, the topic of today's discussion. He founded an agency in Boston called Dockyard, and uh, every year, he writes a, a recap on the sort of lessons learned over over the year in starting that agency and and building it up. Um, and so it's really interesting to to read through those year by year and see what changes. He's really upfront with things like numbers and hiring and firing and mistakes that they made. So I thought that would be really interesting to anyone who's thinking about building out a, a consultancy or or an agency or anything like that. All right. Well, people want to follow up with what you're up to, Gavin. What do they do? Where do they go? Yeah, uh, the best place to find me is on Twitter. I'm at Gavin Ballard. You could also find me uh, GavinBallard.com or our company Disco is at DiscoLabs.com. All right. Uh, well, we'll go ahead and wrap up the show. Thank you for coming, Gavin. We'll uh, catch you all next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.